It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Trail Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg and you can find us on double one double eight five kilohertz that is on the 31 meter band if you are in West Africa. You can also find us on channelafrica.co.za if you prefer streaming us or 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am with Adwala Natulo, Wissani Matebula and Mosibudi Makura, your top stories. A call for South Africa to declare Africa Day a public holiday. And a rare virus spreads, spread by fruit bats kills 10 people in South India. In business news, lawyers for jailed Congo Republic, opposition figure Jean-Marie Michel Mokoko, called on the IMF to make his release a condition for the approval of a bailout for the debt-crippled oil producer. Adwala Natulo is the news. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. Warning against complacency, the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies says the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo is far from over. At least 27 people have died in the outbreak that was first confirmed on the 8th of May in Bikoro Health Zone, a remote part of the country. IFRC is running an emergency operation in affected communities, which includes a major focus on safe and dignified burials. IFRC representative Chiran Levera. We have a critical time here right now to really halt the epidemic from becoming worse. And this is really the work uh, that the Red Cross volunteers can do at the community level. We believe the early warning system and the alarm system is crucial for halting this outbreak. Given that the community is, uh, the volunteers are part of the community even before the outbreak began, we believe that volunteers can have a major role in actually informing people about what is Ebola, what uh, the symptoms, and what they can do if they suspect they have uh, any of the symptoms. An Egyptian human rights lawyer says his client, the prominent opposition blogger Wail Abbas, has been abducted. The BBC's Serena Bill has the details. No one knows the whereabouts of Wail Abbas. According to activists on social media, the outspoken opposition blogger has been taken away from his house blindfolded to an unknown location. They said security forces had confiscated his laptop and mobile phone too. Mr. Abbas reported his arrest on his Facebook page in the early morning, shortly before he disappeared. A prominent human rights lawyer described this as a kidnap. There has been no word from Egypt's authorities so far. South Africa's President Saro Ramaphosa says he will donate half of his presidential salary this year to a Tumamina fund that will be managed by the Nelson Mandela Foundation. This fund will be launched on the 18th of July. Ramaphosa delivered the presidency's budget vote in Parliament in Cape Town. He called in the Western Cape Province. He called on all South Africans who are able to to follow suit. I have, and this is a private initiative that we can all drive, I've decided to contribute half of my presidential salary to a fund that will be managed by the Nelson Mandela Fund. This is a private citizen-driven initiative that will ask all of those with the means to contribute a small portion of their salaries to support the many projects to build a nation. The African Diaspora Forum and the Ethiopian Community Association says they will approach the United Nations and the International Criminal Court to investigate the murder of political activist and refugee Gesa Higen Gebra Meskel Gebra Miriam in Johannesburg, South Africa last month. Hundreds of Ethiopian activists and the clergy from the Ethiopian Orthodox Church marched to the Ethiopian Embassy in the capital Pretoria to hand over a memorandum. However, found the embassy closed and guarded by members of the police's public order unit Ethiopian Community Association spokesperson Haile Shamembo says the closing of the embassy confirms their suspicion that Gebra Miriam's murder was a political assassination. And finally, this Friday, Africans from all walks of life will mark Africa Day, a day set aside to remember the 1963 founding of the Organization of the African Union, or OAU, now the African Union. Africa Day also affords Africans an opportunity to appreciate their achievements and what remains to be done to achieve the dreams of Africa's founding fathers, those of independent states united in their diversity. Ahead of Friday's celebrations, Sarah Kimani in Kenya went out on the streets of Nairobi to check if Kenyans are proud to be Africans.
As a continent, no. We are in a pathetic state. 50 years after independence, I sometimes ask myself, should the colonialists have stayed around? Because in as much as we claim to be independent, we still have to go back to them for aid. Africa as general, we have a challenge, especially when it comes to food production. So we find that, okay, there's a lot of food being produced, but we can't feed the whole Africans. If we continue with the Pan-Africanism spirit that was there, what was shared by the late Kwame Nkrumah, the likes of uh, Jomo Kenyatta and the late Mandela, then we, we can still go ahead. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. That's Rolanda 1706 Central African Time. Now, as countries prepare to mark Africa Day this Friday, the South African Opposition Party, the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, wants the day declared a public holiday. Africa Day is the annual commemoration of the foundation of the Organization of African Unity on May 25, in 1963. It is celebrated in various countries on the African continent, as well as around the world. More from Kenneth Mukhatle, PAC National Spokesperson. The day to us is a symbol of freedom, it's the symbol of what the PAC and the people of South Africa stood for, and it's what the day still promises us uh, of a better future, because we have not yet obtained what we had always been uh, fighting uh, for, which is uh, the absolute rights of African people. Uh, today we are experiencing the imperialism by both the West and the Asian countries. Uh, we have not yet uh, experienced the freedom and the liberation that uh, our forefathers have always been uh, wielding to for the betterment of the lives of African people. So we are saying that we cannot at all be praising uh, and being ad- advancing the heritage and the history uh, of the West. We must uh, start to to play our own drum. We must start to play our own trumpet. Uh, we must we must start to talk about our own history. We must talk about the the significance and the meaningful of of our own our own heritage. There's no one who is going to come from abroad and talk about the good of Africa. Instead, it is us who must be at the forefront of telling people about ourselves. So we cannot be seen uh, praising uh, Christmas Day and other foreign days which are of less significance to us while we are overlooking our own heritage. So we must be at the forefront of telling uh, the world about the history and the heritage of Africa. The day is very important to the PAC, though it talks about freedom, uh, but the freedom that we have never obtained as, as the continent, uh, we, are still, we are still experiencing a lot of challenges, especially the African Union, which was formed, of course, as Organization of African Unity, which does not uh, serve uh, its founding ideals, uh, especially those of yeah. uh, pan-Africanism. Now, let's talk about, I mean, you've highlighted quite a number of, uh, of reasons as to why this day should really um, get the respect that it deserves in your view. But um, how will you then be mobilizing um, for this call um, in order to garner the support that you need um, to back your call? Uh, remember, in, in 1995, we had made a similar submission, and it was declined. But as the PNC, because we cannot we cannot be cry fouling to the government to do something about this day, uh, we have been ensuring that when this day arrives, we we, we celebrate it in different ways. Uh, we, we call all organizations, especially the Africa who are living in the diaspora, to also ensure that. Uh, that they mobilize other people, not only Africans, but other people, and tell them the significance of this particular day. So we are saying that uh, the campaigns are, are growing, are increasingly growing, and what we are doing is that we are using the media, as I'm speaking to you now, I'm speaking to millions of people, uh, to also ensure that they are doing something about this day. So we are, we are mobilizing through the media, and after that, we will also ensure that we, 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 we are making uh, submissions again to, to 
relevant authorities to ensure that uh, they declare this particular day as a as a holiday. A holiday does not necessarily mean that the business should should be closed. The holiday means that uh, the day should be observed uh, in a more dignified mm. way. There, there's mm. a particular there's a particular similar holiday in America whereby mm-hmm. during the Black History Month that the day is celebrated and is devoted to Black History. Uh, it does not necessarily mean that everyone in America should not go to work, but it's the day simply means that uh, we must accord the, the same respect, the same dignity uh, to that, to the significance and the meaningfulness of, of that particular day. So we are saying that this day should be respected like other days are being respected. Just uh, finally, we know that um, Africa Day falls uh, this Friday. How is the PAC going to be observing this year? We'll, we'll be in Tembisa in the East Rand of Johannesburg, uh, amongst others, we have invited the Embassy of Palestine. You will remember that the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania identifies most with the dispossessed people. They identify most with the oppressed people. You will remember that the Palestinians have suffered uh, a major blow with the Gaza massacre which have occurred. So we'll have them who are going to make presentation and the PAC president will also make presentation. And we have invited... Uh, most other African embassies who are promising to send their representatives or delegates, but they have not yet consent. But we are happy that, uh, amongst others, the Palestinians will be there, and they will share with us the experiences uh, of theirs. And it is not only about Africa, but it is about everyone in the world who are oppressed. It is about the Australians uh, who are dispossessed of their land. It is about the Americans who are dispossessed of their land. So it's not basically about Africans, but it's about everyone who can identify with the dispossessed and oppressed people of the world. Kenneth Mokatlis, PAC National Spokesperson, he was on the line with Zekona Miso. The International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Christian Societies has announced an expansion of its operations in response to the Ebola outbreak in the DRC. The IFRC says the outbreak is far from over and warns against complacency. At least 27 people have died in an outbreak that was first confirmed on 8 May in the Bilkoro Health Zone in remote parts of the country. More from IFRC representative in the DRC, Ishiran Levera. We have a critical time here right now to really halt the epidemic from becoming worse. And this is really the work uh, that the Red Cross volunteers can do at the community level. We believe the early warning system and the alarm system is crucial for halting this outbreak. Given that the community is, uh, the volunteers are part of the community, even before the outbreak began, we believe that volunteers can have a major role in actually informing people about what is Ebola, what uh, the symptoms, and what they can do if they suspect they have uh, any of the symptoms. Let's talk about the IFRC's response in terms of how exactly are you helping the country deal with this outbreak so that it does not spread any further? Yes, the Red Cross is part of a critical network here in the Congo. We work very closely with the Ministry of Health and other uh, humanitarian organizations to respond to the outbreak. For the Red Cross, we have a five-stage approach to this response. The first one is really related to community engagement. We believe that engaging the community in this response is crucial to preventing it from becoming worse. The second and most probably uh, other important aspects are related with contact tracing. This is what we call when the Red Cross volunteers are able to identify individuals that have suspected or confirmed cases of Ebola and then contact everyone else that that person has been in contact with and trying to prevent the outbreak from uh, happening more. Now, for those individuals that have unfortunately passed away from suspected Ebola cases, this is a very critical time when the disease can spread during the funeral process. So the Red Cross volunteers are actually in charge in the area to actually pick up the bodies in a safe and dignified manner and make sure they're buried accordingly. This is all done with the consent of the community. What's important is that the Red Cross volunteers come from the communities affected by Ebola. So they're very well known to the community. They speak the local language. They know the cultures and customs of the community. Therefore, we have wide-range acceptance, and we really believe that this is critical to uh, stopping the outbreak. I am glad you touch on the acceptance part because I wanted to ask, what's the reaction of these communities that you are trying to assist? Are they cooperating with you guys, and are they willing to take advice and be educated more about Ebola? 
Yes, in fact, we feel the communities are very cooperative and they are very keen to learn more about Ebola. This is one of the first times that the Ebola outbreak has happened in this specific part of the country. So when we are providing the community with information about what is the virus, how it is transmitted, and what people can do to prevent it, we find that people are very receptive and asking very informed questions. This is really important to make sure that everyone understands how to prevent Ebola from occurring, but also how to, uh, what to do if they suspect that they have Ebola, that they have to go to a health center immediately and seek support. Uh, this is really important, and the community acceptance is one of the most important things for us. I understand that those affected are in isolated rural areas, and so there are difficulties in terms of aid agencies and others easily making their way to these remote areas. You know, you're right that this is a very rural area, Bikoro. In fact, even beyond Bikoro, where some of the cases are happening, is even more rural than that. What we're finding is that it's also the rainy season, so it's raining every day now. So the roads become even worse. And transportation is, is difficult at the best of times. So what we are finding is our volunteers are able to get around with motorbikes. And this is really the main way that our volunteers are going from community to community to community is through this network. But, you know, we understand the challenges, but we also have mechanisms to mediate uh, our, our work and make sure that uh, we can continue with our activities. Christian Levera is with the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies in the DRC, talking to Jane Rabotada. 17.16 Central African time, a rare virus spread by fruit bats, which can cause flu-like symptoms and brain damage, has killed 10 people in southern India, with at least nine more being uh, treated. At least a specialist team has now been deployed at the coastal state of Kerala, as we find out from Rana Sen. Three of the victims tested positive for Nipah in the past few days and doctors said results from the remaining samples will be known soon. The outbreak clearly worried Kerala lawmaker K.V. Thomas. There is no vaccine for Nipah. The news that there is no effective way of treating it, no effective medicine is something has to be looked very seriously. And in a modern world of better medicines, better technology of finding out the viruses, the cause for the fever and how this can be properly treated is something the government of India as well as the state government has to handle very urgently. Among those dead in Kerala's Kozikode district was a nurse who was treating infected people. Virologist Arun Divan offered some tips to fight the virus transmitted by fruit bats. The concerns are because of human-to-human transmission, so we have to be taking the usual viral precautions in which one is taking care of the people who are having such a disease known like any virus illnesses. We should have better hygiene precautions as well as precautions observed related to people who are coughing so that they cover their face and nose and they perform the hand hygiene frequently. Emergency response team leader Ravi Kumar was in Kozikode where experts sounded a health alert in a bid to try and contain the outbreak within the district. This all happened in the span of a few days. The health system has earlier proved that in case of emerging disease, the system in Kerala has responded very fast in previous instances. We hope that in this case we will be able to maintain or attain that containment one thing. Second, we will be able to reduce the number of further people who are getting affected. We also hope to reduce spread of the infection by increasing our standards of hospital infection control and uh, providing utmost technical support and medical support to those who need it in time. Symptoms of the infection include headache, drowsiness and disorientation. These can lead to coma. Former Indian Medical Association President K.K. Agarwal had other worries. This encephalitis, which is like a Japanese encephalitis, can also cause human-to-human transmission. 2001, there was large number of cases in Siliguri, which is in West Bengal, and from Bangladesh can cross the border and come to West Bengal. But going to Kozikode, going to Kerala, is a matter of concern. Studies needs to be done to find out what is the source here. Nipah was first identified in Malaysia in 1990. In India, the disease was first reported in 2001 and again six years later, with two outbreaks that caused 50 deaths. It has a mortality rate of 70%. For Newsbreak, this is Zana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com. 
If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunye Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. It is 1721 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumelele Zondi with you until 1800 hours. Now a recent report by the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center and the Norwegian Refugee Council says conflicts and disasters displaced a staggering 30.6 million people within their own countries last year. Sub-Saharan Africa encountered for 5.5 million of these displacements followed by the Middle East and North Africa with a 4.5 million. This brings the total number of people living in internal displacement due to conflicts close to 40 million worldwide. For a breakdown of these numbers, we are now joined on the line by Alexandra Pilak, Director of the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Alexandra. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Now, Alexandra, the 30.6 million figure is an equivalent of more than 80,000 people displaced each day. This is disheartening. It is indeed disheartening. Uh, We're shocked every year by the figures that we report on, uh, particularly the new displacement figures that show that um, it's still a very dynamic, very volatile situation across the world. This year, our conflict-related figures are the highest that we've reported in over a decade. Uh, So we're particularly concerned by some of the conflict-affected countries across the world. You've mentioned Sub-Saharan Africa, of course, with DRC uh, being high on our radar screen, but also the Middle East, Syria and Iraq have had had some of the highest numbers this year. Um, So it is disheartening. Uh, It shows that... um, it shows that we're not making enough efforts to prevent internal displacement from happening, but also that uh, we're not finding the right kinds of solutions to assist and to protect those who are already displaced. What are the problems in those areas? Uh, well, it, when it comes to sub-Saharan Africa, um, and particularly the DRC, we're looking at uh, political instability that has reignited uh, local conflicts across the country. In 2016 already we saw renewed conflict in the Kasai region, in the center of the country, Um, and then more recently some upsurges in violence in North Kivu, South Kivu, and and Tanganyika in the the east. Um, Of course these conflicts are essentially political, uh, but they're not uh, not exclusive to, to Congo. As you know, there are still high levels of violence in countries like Nigeria, South Sudan, CAR, Somalia, but also generated uh, new displacements during the year. Um, In the Middle East, we were looking mostly at displacement that was caused by government offensives against, um, or to retake actually some cities that had been previously occupied by by ISIS. And in other parts of the world, like Afghanistan, we're just looking at high levels of insecurity and instability that continue to push people to to leave their homes um, on on a daily basis. So really very much our conflict figures are a, a mix of uh, armed attacks, aerial bombings, um, and, and general you know, uh, struggle over resources and, and general insecurity and instability. 
Now, if we look at some of the more underlying drivers of displacement, we see mm -hmm. that it becomes much more complex. Uh, we're looking at displacement that's caused by poverty, environmental change, uh, disaster risk in some countries. Um, so all sorts of structural factors also that are at play. And if they don't, if they're not addressed in the future, they'll continue to generate high levels of displacement. And when people leave, where do they go? Uh, well, that's actually a question that's, um, that I mean, the, the answer to that question is going to vary uh, from context to context. Um, in the DRC, for example, many people are flying, uh, are fleeing, sorry, on a, on a repeated uh, basis, and they tend to, you know, if, if they don't have access to an IDP camp, they'll tend to stay with host families and, and, and shelter with those host families. Uh, in, other, in other countries, you'll see people, uh, that, that, that was the case, for example, in the Ukraine that's also still on, ongoing, in an ongoing uh, conflict situation where people are, IDPs are in rental accommodation, they're struggling even to pay their, to pay their rent. They've had to move from, from uh, in, in some cases, they've had to move from rural areas to urban areas, uh, and they've had to essentially change their, change their lifestyle in the process of, of displacement. And yet in other contexts, particularly in disaster displacement, you're looking at people who are evacuated um, by their government in some cases and who are relocated into, um, into government-run uh, shelters, um, you know, uh, housing areas, etc., essentially that are converted to, uh, to, to shelter people on a temporary basis. So it really varies from context to context. It also it varies on the, it, it depends on the, the response of the government. It depends on um, the capacity of the government to, to respond. It depends on whether or not there's a presence of international NGOs, and it depends on whether mm. or not we're looking at an urban or a rural setting. Um, and uh, is internal displacement the first option? Do people have a choice of where they go, or they go to where they can survive? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the internal displacement tends to, to reflect really people's first uh, reaction to a, to a threat. Um, and so in many cases, even though in some, in some, uh, in some cases you'll see an immediate cross-border movement, particularly for people who are living close to a border in, in, in border areas, or for people who have perhaps uh, you know, be better options or, or, or more options at their disposal, they'll, you know, they'll, uh, they'll be able to leave the country. But in many cases, in the majority of cases, people leave their home and they, and they try not to, to move too far away from their homes because they, in many cases they expect to be able to return, uh, to return soon, which we've, we've documented through our reports is unfortunately not the case. And people tend to remain internally displaced for very long periods of time. Um, when you say long periods, what are they? Oh, again, it, it varies uh, hugely. If you look at Syria, for example, uh, we know that people have been, many IDPs that we're reporting on have been displaced since the beginning of the conflict. So we're talking seven years. In the DRC, the conflict has been ongoing now for decades. Um, and even though out of the out of the millions of people that we've reported as being displaced in 2017, we don't know how many of them were displaced for the first time, but we suspect that many had already been displaced previously. So we're now looking at periods of displacement that range from a few months or a few weeks in a disaster context to to uh, to several decades in some cases. We have protracted uh, IDP caseloads in some countries like Azerbaijan or even Colombia that have been that have been ongoing for for, for you know 10, 20, 30 years. What then is the best method to attend to their needs? Well, there needs to be a, a good, solid mix of, uh, first and foremost, a, a solid humanitarian response to attend to their immediate needs. Uh, in, in, in some of the worst conflict contexts, IDPs can be some of the most vulnerable people, and they need targeted and specific assistance, uh, whether it's for, for women, for children. They have needs that vary hugely from shelter to nutrition to, mm. even in some cases, psychological support. So yeah. there's a short-term... Uh, immediate response that needs to be delivered 
But for those people who have been displaced for a long period of time and who are mm -hmm. struggling to reintegrate and to recover their, their lives, they need much more long-term uh, support and investments, both from their, from their, from their the government, yeah. but also from the international community. And that means investments in, you know, to, to guarantee that they can have an income, that they can put their children into school, um, you know, and that they can, have a, that they can right. stabilize their lives more or less to the same level as they had before displacement. Alexandra, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's Alexandra Bilak, who is the director of the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre, 1730 Central African Time. Here's Jolana Tula with your news headlines. Frankis Pumalele making headlines. An Egyptian human rights lawyer says his client, the prominent opposition blogger Wael Abbas, has been abducted. The African Diaspora Forum and the Ethiopian Community Association says they will approach the United Nations and the International Criminal Court to investigate the murder of political activist and refugee Gezezan Gebremeskil Gebe Miriam in Johannesburg, South Africa last month. And finally, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says he will donate half of his presidential salary this year to a Tumamina fund that will be managed by the Nelson Mandela Foundation. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. My name is Sipa Hotsticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And the program you're listening to is Africa Digest with me, Pumela Lezondi, with you until 1800 hours Central African time. It is 1733 Central African time. Now a campaign is underway to vaccinate every child and young person in Fiji against uh, meningococcal disease. The illness that causes meningitis or inflammation of the brain and spinal cord, it is in response to an outbreak earlier this year which killed four people. Meningococcal disease is caused by bacteria transmitted by an infected person through respiratory or throat secretions. More on, on this from Kate Heinlich, who is a chief of communications in the Pacific area with the United Nations Children's Fund. This campaign was launched on Monday the 14th of May because of an increase of meningococcal disease in Fiji. There was an outbreak that was declared by the Fijian government in late March this year. And from the start of the year until the end of April, there were 64 cases of meningococcal disease in the country. Almost half of these were among children less than five years of age. And all the cases were among children from one to 19 years. And is this unusual? 
This is unusual. For the past 10 years, there's been a few cases each year reported, but this started increasing at the end of 2017 and then continued to increase in the start of this year. And this has led to the outbreak being declared. And what's UNICEF's role? Okay, UNICEF has played a key role in supporting the Ministry of Health and Medical Services to get the vaccines. It's called the meningococcal C vaccine, and this was not available in Fiji at the time. So there's going to be 325,000 children and adolescents who received the vaccine. To get that number of doses, they needed to be sourced from outside the country globally. UNICEF has supported to source those. So far, almost 125,000 doses have arrived in the country and there's another 200,000 that will be here shortly. And a type of big campaign like this, does it involve partnerships? Yes, definitely. So UNICEF is working with the World Health Organization, the Ministry of Health and Medical Services, and also the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is supporting in this campaign. As well as that, there are all the schools and the community health workers who are involved in delivering the campaign. And how do you access remote communities in a place like Fiji? Okay, so the what will be happening are the health workers will be giving the vaccinations in schools. So most of the children, if they're at school age, will receive their vaccination at school. Then there are the health facilities. So the vaccines will be delivered to the health facilities. They'll be kept in eskies to keep them at the correct temperature and the cold chain so that they're effective when they arrive. There's a lot of uh, communication that is taking place to encourage everyone to come to the health facility and to have their vaccination. And how will the vaccination program help the non-target groups of the community? Okay, well, when enough people are vaccinated within a community, this protects everyone. So sometimes, for example, newborn babies cannot be vaccinated and they may be at risk if not enough people are vaccinated against the meningococcal disease. And an outbreak is more likely to happen when not enough people in the community. It's called herd immunity. When enough people are vaccinated, it protects the entire community. And with a campaign like this, is there a sort of an education campaign alongside it? How do people understand why they're being vaccinated? Yes, UNICEF is working with the Ministry of um, Health here to ensure that messages are taken to the communities that understand what the vaccination is for. There's a mass communication campaign that's going out in newspapers and on radio. And this informs the community about the vaccine, why it's important, and also about the safety of the vaccine. So you consider education an important component of a vaccination campaign like this? It's incredibly important and as well taking measures such as not using the same utensils with someone who has the disease or covering your mouth when you sneeze. All of those are preventative measures as well that can be taken and these are being encouraged and communicated with the population of Fiji. Does the Pacific need more support in terms of sourcing and delivering this type of program? Yes, there's a need for a lot of support in the region to deliver vaccination programs in addition to the one that's currently happening in Fiji. There's also the routine vaccination programs across the Pacific and many children still die in the Pacific. About one quarter of deaths among children could be prevented by receiving the vaccination. So it's vital that there's support, there's funding for these programs to ensure that every child gets the right start to life and the vaccine to keep them healthy. That's Kate Heinrich, Chief of Communications in the Pacific Area with the United Nations Children's Fund, speaking to UN Radio's Julia Dean. Last week, the South African weekly newspaper Mail and Guardian reported that the South African Department of International Relations and Cooperation, Lindiwe Sisulu, had appointed a review panel to evaluate the country's foreign policy and advise on ways to strengthen South Africa's economic diplomacy with other African states. It was uh, reported that Sisulu wants a former President Habumbegi to preside over the panel. Begi's African Renaissance was aimed at ensuring that Africa's political stability and economic regeneration, focusing on freeing it from its international debt burden. To help us analyze what African Renaissance is all about, 
We spoke to Tami Ndendeni, Head of Communications at the Tabombegi Foundation, and Ashantewa Acha Ngidi, who is a founder of the Institute of Africology and the Reference Committee member for Africa Month, appointed by South Africa's Minister of Arts and Culture, Natim Tetwa. It may have taken a back seat with regard to government at the particular time because of variety of reasons. But on the whole, as I say, President Mbeki and the foundation have been seized with the question of African Renaissance. So from that perspective, the African Renaissance, from the point of view of President Mbeki and from the, pres- uh, from the point of view of uh, the Tabo Mbeki Foundation and other former presidents of the country, you, I, I think you will remember, for example, that uh, last year we had, um, we had here what we call the African Leadership Forum, yeah. which, amongst other things, discussed uh, the prospects for peace here in Africa and what are the impediments towards attaining mm. sustainable peace here in Africa. So I do not think that it would be correct to say mm. because the African Renaissance ideal for some time took a back seat in terms of the government, mm. it was no longer an issue. Mm. It has not been like that. It may have happened like that, I don't know because of whatever reasons the government may have or maybe certain priorities. Mm. But it has never, from the point of view of Tabombeki and from the point of view of the foundation and from the point of view of other African leaders. Mm. I, I remember that, for example, last year we had um, President Obasanjo, yeah, we had Benjamin Mkapa, yeah, we had a number of African leaders of former African leaders engaged and seized with the challenges that are confronting the African continent. Ashantua, very interesting to see that uh, from Tami's perspective that uh, the continuance of the ideals and the ideas of the African Renaissance have been uh, continuing and we've seen them entrench themselves even outside the formal uh, spaces of uh, politics and also of academia. We've seen the whole conversation around land restitution in in South Africa, not only in South Africa, but also in different parts of the continent. We've also seen the uh, also big conversation that's happening currently in countries such as Kenya, in countries such as South Africa, of actually uh, re-looking at uh, the education of the African continent and Africanizing even curriculums. So definitely the notion of the African renaissance is becoming even more popularized even without outside the conventions of institutions. I have to agree with, with our brother from um, the Tabo and Becky Institute when he says that indeed the nationwide awareness around Africa Renaissance as it was under the time of uh, former President Mbeki, um, it has the programs are still in place communities have taken over aspect of it but i think one of the danger when we have a, a high level personality who is who is leading to the charge and is not any longer around you know there's a danger that it gets put aside but i believe that since former Becky left the african renaissance has found its rebirth in many different ways and um, I'm just very, uh, what I'm clear about is that there are many organizations who have used aspects of the African Renaissance. I think what is key here is to not make it again a theoretic mm-hmm. exercise, sure. an exercise of just university people. Because that's one of the dangers I've found with the African Renaissance, the Pan-African movement, is that mm-hmm. we're still only finding it in spaces of university and and, and, and tertiary. We need to go far down because of the history of South Africa. We need to go back to primary schools and to the high schools where it's a discourse around this issue of uh, where are we in the African Renaissance? Because if we have to re-look really on what is it that we are giving birth to, what is that renewal of what we give it, we're going to have to have the community speaking to what it is that they are hoping and expecting from that rebirth. Tomorrow we go to we go to Kigali with a group of 24 young people. And the idea in Kigali is that we are going with 24 diverse young people and they're going to be put across communities. Mm. And the idea mm. is that they're going to find 
and people who have similar thinking about what they're doing. And that, for me, is really about the Renaissance, the connecting of African people on the ground without having to be told this is a government mandate. That is the founder of the Institute of Africology, Ashantewa Achangidi, who is also a member of the of the reference committee member for Africa Month, appointed by South Africa's Minister of Arts and Culture, Nati Mtetwa. You also heard from Tamin Dendeni, who is the head of communications at the Tabombegi Foundation. They were speaking to Benjamin Moshadama. It is now time for your economics news. Here's Wissani Matewula. Good evening. Thanks, Espumelele. Lawyers for jailed Congo Republic opposition figure Jean-Marie Michel Mukuku have called on the International Monetary Fund to make his release a condition for the approval of a bailout for the dead crippled oil producer. Mukuku, a former army commander who ran as a candidate in a 2016 presidential election, was jailed for 20 years this month after his conviction on charges that he sought to topple government of President Denis Sassou Congo's negotiations with the IMF have dragged on since last year, but last month the fund said it would propose a deal once the Central African nation had fulfilled conditions, including negotiating with the creditors to make its debt sustainable. And flows of crude oil along Nigeria's Transforcados pipeline have started to ramp up after an outage of almost a week. The pipeline, which usually carries around 200,000 and 240,000 barrels of oil per day was closed to repair a leak a week ago. Royal Dutch Shell, which operates the Focados oil terminal, said earlier on in the day that exports have not been disrupted by the closure, although industry sources have said June loading cargoes of Focados crude had already been deferred to July because of the temporary shutdown. And South Africa's annual consumer price inflation rate has come in lower than initially anticipated. Status A reports that consumer inflation was at 4.5% in April, up from 3.8% in March 2018. The consumer price index increased by 0.8% month-on-month in April 2018. Contributions to headline inflation came from food, alcoholic beverages and transport. Economist Azajamini. A big increase was expected, but in fact the number came in a little lower than one would have expected at 4.5%, whereas the consensus forecasts were for a 4.8% outcome. And if one analyzes it, the overall impression one gets is that the uh, impact of the 1% increase in the rate of VAT did not filter through as strongly as might have been anticipated. And German financial giant Deutsche Bank could cut up to 10,000 jobs as it looks to convince investors that it's serious about returning to profitability. Deutsche Bank executives will face uh, investors at the bank's annual general meeting. Shares in the lender slipped at 0.8% to 12 US dollars per share after the news broke out. This has outperformed a DAX index of blue chip German shares that was down 1.36%. And the Turkish lira has slipped to new lows against the U.S. dollar, raising speculation of a full-blown economic crisis weeks before the elections. The BBC's Celine Garrett reports. The people have seen the game and the player, government spokesman Bekir Boza said, following a record fall in the lira. He defended the government's economic policies, saying the voters had seen the puppet and the puppeteers. This was a clear reference to the belief of government supporters that foreign powers are orchestrating the collapse. Mr. Bozda said the falls would not change the outcome of the election. But it's all people in Turkey are talking about. The lira is weakening further each day and its decline reflects growing fears over the health of a Turkish economy unable to shrug off double-digit inflation despite continued growth. A look now at your financial indicators. The dollar at 9.81, Botswana Pula 10.15, Zambian Kwacha. That's against the SADC currencies. We're looking at BRICS currencies now. The dollar is at 3.66, Brazilian Real 
61.33 Russian ruble, 68.2 Indian rupee, 6.35 Chinese yuan, and 12.57 South African rand. In European currencies, it's trading at 74 pence to the British pound and 84 cents against the euro. The commodities market, gold $1,292, platinum $903 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil has gone up to $79.07 per barrel. And that's your economics news right now. Thank you very much, Osani. Remember that you can find us on channelafrica.co.za if you want to stream us. That is channelafrica.co.za. You can also send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Musibudi Makura has your sports news. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with cricket news in a shock move, A.B. de Villiers has announced his retirement from all international forms of cricket with immediate effect. Now, the 34-year-old announced the news on his own app earlier today, posting a video to his followers. The decision comes as a massive blow to the Proteus who have been uh, counting on de Villiers at next year's World Cup at the end of May. Now, de Villiers has always been vocal on his dream to win the World Cup, but he bows out of international cricket as one of the greatest players to have represented South Africa, having played 114 test matches, 228 one-day internationals, as well as 78 T20 internationals. Now, in the video, he said that uh, this was a tough decision and had thought long and hard about it and that uh, he would like to retire while still playing decent cricket after the fantastic series wins against India, as well as Australia, now feels like the right time to step aside, he further said. Meanwhile, former South African captain Sean Pollock and uh, cricket analyst has a respect uh, has uh, been named rather as a media representative and appointed to the ICC committee. Now, while uh, others on the committee include Australia's women's captain and ICC cricket hall of famer Belinda Clark, Scotland's uh, captain uh, Carl Kutsia, as well as New Zealand national team coach Mike Hesson. Now, the committee is representative of all stakeholders in the modern game, including players, empires as well as the media. Well, South Africa's sports star of the year and long jump world champion Luvo Manyonga is in line to win the African Union Sports Council Regional 5 Annual Sport Award in the Sports Personality of the Year category. Now, the awards will take place at the Birchwood Hotel in Johannesburg, east of Johannesburg, on Saturday evening. Manyonga, who clinched the IAAF World Championship gold medal in London last year, remains unbeaten in the outdoor long jump since 2016. He will be up against the likes of 400-meter um, sprinter Karabo Sibanda of Botswana as well as Samson Murube of Zimbabwe. Now here is the CEO of the awards Stanley Motoya reflecting on how far the awards has come. Uh, to our young athletes up and coming uh, but also calling on those that have retired to come back here and, and meet with these young people and tell them what they've experienced and this is a platform that we've had and that's why you're seeing that uh, going forward we're bringing in some legends as well to be part of this rasa and, and say look we came from, from this, we know what it can be done and we can do it uh, and, and the legends are quite uh, numerous in our region who have also gone on a world uh, global uh, showcase. Just look at the Commonwealth Games held um, uh, in, in, in Gold Coast. Uh, this region eight uh, games records that we broke um, and uh, it's from this region Casta Semenya, Luvo in sport for people with disabilities uh, you know we, we have had in swimming as well um, uh, 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 breaking the games records and those are the things that we as a region need to salute and and continue to speak our story. Now South Africa is hosting these awards for the um, for the first third time in succession and it's expected that the next awards will be moving to another country. Modoya says that they have got a long list of athletes who started making their mark in regional events, the likes of Akane Simbeni, Wade Fanigag, Najo Emos and many more.
The list is endless. We had Nigel Amos also in, in the same games in, in Zambia, if you, if you recall. Uh, Wade Van Niekerk was in 2010 in, 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 in Swaziland. And, and the list goes on. And, and this is a time that we must celebrate our, our, young, our young people and, and give an inspiration to the upcoming as well, uh, that it can be done. Yeah, and they, they really can make it in, in sport and, uh, and, and that everybody is there to say thank you, not only from their own respective countries, but the whole uh, region uh, uh, you know, um, reserves three hours of a standing ovation to say well done to you um, uh, uh, young people, you have done us proud. And I think we, we, we want also uh, to continue that, that, that uh, narrative uh, to our young athletes up and coming. And finally, in cycling news, Team Dementia data for Quebec rider Louis Menkis has uh, for, has been forced rather to withdraw from uh, the Girlo d'Italia due to an illness. The 26-year-old riding the event for the first time has been inside the top 50 of the general classification after stage 16, but had been struggling with flu-like symptoms in recent days. He took the decision in conjunction with the team doctor as well as the sporting directors and departed the team following the individual time trial that finished in Roberto on Tuesday. Now, Menkis has now returned home where he will focus on making a swift recovery. He's the second member of the team to withdraw from the race following earlier exit from Ego Anton. The Zaya Sports News at the Sun back with more sports news just before 8pm Central African time. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-five Central African time. Let us recap our top stories. A call for South Africa to declare Africa Day a public holiday and a rare virus is spread by fruits bats in India. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spomelele Zondi, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. You can send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS, plus 2776-300-3327. Tweet us on Channel Africa 1. We leave you by If by David O. My money, my body, now your own. It's only your body. If I tell you, say I love you, oh. My money, my body, now your own, oh, baby. Party billion for the account, yo. Versace and Gucci for your body, oh, baby.
My number one in tutu Sipping bruku tutu For your love it tutu I go chuku 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 Biko obyanuju Say you do me juju Cause I'm feeling the juju And you know say nobody only But I don't go tell you story I gotta be your man I gotta be your man Let me talk to you Say a few things Girl I'm feeling you But it's up to you Say you know I got this I love you, I love you I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you There's nothing above you There's nothing above you, above you, above you I like your mini skirt, you. Okay, you carry fancy, you. If I tell you, say I love you, oh. My money, my body, now your own, oh baby. Thirty billion for the account, you. Versace and Gucci for your body, oh baby. No do, no do, no do, gotta, gotta for me. Mura ndire moni omvera nonse kuri konse kumene mkuti mvanda uyino mene ifachinyanja tadza pano ndi zomwe takon